Hello and welcome to another episode of Hashtag Disruption Dialogues, a Markets and Markets podcast series for growth-minded strategy, market intelligence, and competitive intelligence professionals. Today, our host Pranjal Sharma is in discussion with Brian Williams, Chief Digital Officer and Global Life Sciences Consulting Leader at Cognizant. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disruption Dialogues. I'm Pranjal Sharma. I'm an author based in New Delhi, India. And today we're going to be discussing with Brian Williams. Thanks, Brian, for being with us today. My pleasure, Pranjal. It's an exciting topic, Brian, about robotic surgery. And I think it brings equal amount of excitement as well as anxiety about the concept of a machine operating on a human body. While everybody expects a human doctor, the trust and faith in humans is still much higher than in robots especially when it comes to medical uh, issues or whenever it's invasive. So it has been around for decades. You know, it's not as if robotics and automated surgery has not been around, but give us a sense of where we are today. How much advances have we seen in robotic surgery? Yeah, well, you're right, Pranjal. It's not a a new concept, uh, robotic surgery. It has been around for quite some time. And in fact, some things in the U.S. market and now in other markets like the LASIK surgery procedure have been around for quite some time. They've driven down costs rather significantly. Uh, They deliver pretty consistent and high quality outcomes. And uh, in the U.S., right, I think it's uh, over 800,000 LASIK procedures are conducted year over year. So quite a, a history there for that particular procedure. And then if we look to another leader like intuitive surgical, uh, really abdominal uh, surgeries, pelvic area surgeries for men and women, their robots have done tens of millions of procedures. So you're exactly right. The use of robots to facilitate the delivery of surgical procedures has been around for some time. And what we've learned over the years is how those robots can improve clinical outcomes and in sometimes rather dramatic fashion over traditional uh, physician procedures. And while we'll still need physicians for the first time, perhaps to learn and establish that base of knowledge, Uh, We also know that in many markets around the world, including uh, the U.S. and elsewhere, there's a shortage of physicians available to do those procedures. So we're quite uh, optimistic about the future of robotic surgery here at Cognizant and how our clients are adapting uh, those robotic platforms to provide access to more people to higher quality care and deliver better care outcomes. How complex is it getting, Brian? Because, you know, relatively a LASIK surgery would be considered less complex. I mean, every surgery is, of course, complex. It's not to take away from the importance and the perils of of going under the knife. But with each, and as you described, you know, if you're talking about the abdominal area, you're talking about heart, you're talking about the pelvic area, the complexity of the body is varied. And therefore, the effort and skill of the robot has to match of a very highly skilled surgeon. Where are we in the evolution curve of the skill set of robots in surgery in different parts of the body? Another good question, Pranjal, right? Because we have a couple of things that are coming into confluence here to address this question that you posed. One is obviously from the mechanical standpoint, the ability for a robot to make finer and finer controlled movements, right? There was specificity. Second is the development of the data sets that are necessary for those robots to understand the variances from procedure to procedure, as well as from person to person. And then 
then finally, the clinical efficacy associated with that robot and its ability to deliver consistently a good health outcome, a good procedure for that patient. So if we take those three pieces uh, apart and look at each of them discreetly, what we see on the hardware side is the hardware following a traditional kind of technology and hardware curve that each generation gets better than the prior generation. And we expect that to continue. And we see that across all aspects of our lives. So we expect that technology aspect to that hardware aspect to advance rather significantly. If I were to draw an analogy between robots and autonomous driving, there are various categories of autonomous driving, right? So fully Mm -hmm. autonomous, partially autonomous, guided autonomous. Would you say that robotic surgery also has these variations of human participation, collaboration, intervention? It's not as if you wheel me into the operation room and there is no human there and it's just a robot with arms trying to cut me up. Yeah, that, that's right. I don't think any of us are quite ready for that. I think the uh, appropriate analogy here would be for an airplane pilot, right? Most flights are run by a robot. The pilot is there really for the most difficult pieces, right? The takeoff and the landing of the plane and there to support or engage if there are challenges along the way. And that's quite frankly what we would anticipate to see in the robotic surgery environment is that we'll still have environments where, yes, the physician, the nurse, uh, those clinicians will need to be in the room. But what the robots will allow them to do is to handle higher procedure volumes uh, and handle some of those procedure volumes where they might not physically be located. We might have an expert, uh, you know, like uh, Dr. Shetty there in India, who's well recognized in the cardiovascular space. He only has 24 hours in a day. Several of those hours, he probably wishes to sleep, maybe have a little bite to eat once in a while. But with the robots and the technology that's put around them, uh, his ability to see and deal with more patients, uh, whether they are in his facility or remotely, expands rather significantly. So that's what we'd anticipate to see, right? More like an airplane where an expert like Dr. Shetty is maybe complemented by a more junior clinician who's in a remote facility with the robot and the patient, but benefiting from his expertise. But we should also keep in mind and kind of separate these two things. There is this human desire to have that clinician in the room from a comfort and safety factor. But that expertise that any one of these physicians uh, gathers over their lifetime is based on the number of procedures that they're involved in. And back to the example of we all, all have the same 24 hours in a day. Even if I'm a very productive surgeon, at the end of my career, I might have done tens of thousands of procedures. And as we noted in the opening comments, there are several of these robotic platforms that have done millions of procedures. So that ability to adapt to the variations that exist within the human anatomy and the human physiology, the robot is and the data sets that comprise the assets that that robot is drawing from for each procedure are much greater and in real time than any clinician will ever have over their course of their career. So it's really the complement of the two, that personal touch that the clinician, the doctor, the nurse bring into the environment, but the sophistication and the inhuman abundance of data that is represented by the technology that is housed within the robot. Yeah, that's the word I wanted to come to you about sophistication. Uh, What is the future looking like, uh, Brian, from where you are? What kind of 
changes, sophistication, improvement in robotic surgery technologies uh, can we anticipate or do you see in the near future? Yeah, I think we'll continue on this path in the near future where we have robotic platforms that are built to serve a specific procedure type. Again, LASIK is perhaps a simpler procedure, comparatively speaking, but that robot is really trained to do that procedure. And we'll see Intuitive as they started, as an example, right, a very narrow focus. And then over time, in the same area of the anatomy, similar procedures and then extending from men to women. So uh, I expect we'll see more and more of these platforms that are procedure specific in the near term. And in the midterm is when we'll start to see, I believe, this combination robot that is able to handle more than one procedure type, likely linked to some commonality, either a region of the body, and they can do more types of procedures or, or procedures that are consistent across body types and health outcomes. The long-term vision will be that ubiquitous multi-purpose robot. So it's interesting because typically surgeons, uh, human surgeons, specialize on specific uh, parts. So, you know, for example, abdominal surgeons are different. Uh, neck and head the surgeons are, yes. are have a different specialization. You're saying that uh, one, robots will actually go beyond those specializations and be able to operate on different parts of the body with the same machine. Eventually, I believe that to be true because the specialization, again, back to why do we see specialization within those clinical populations? It's to develop a depth of knowledge across a number of cases and to be able to deal with the permutations that will arise in any kind of procedure. And, and if we look again at those clinicians over the course of the careers, uh, we're looking at procedure volumes that are in the tens of thousands. Right? The first procedure a surgeon does is not going to be as good as the hundredth, not going to be as good as the thousandth or the ten thousandth when he or she is in the latter parts of his or her career. And what we are seeing with this uh, proliferation of data that comes off of the procedure volumes, and it will take time to build that database up, but the robots are able to ingest and manage right? Millions upon millions of those data points in real time that even the best physicians not capable of doing. So their ability to augment and extend beyond what we can do as humans, that's really the power of the robots. That's, that's a fascinating piece, Brian, because really this is also a role for Internet of Things where every activity, every action, there is constant and almost immediate analysis of what the uh, robo is doing, which means that, you know, the robo is thinking, storing, saving, analyzing all at the same time, which also requires that there be an ecosystem around it. It's not just about the machine alone, isn't it? That's exactly right. As we know, particularly in this kind of area of uh, surgical procedure, there is a high human emotional element to it. So not only does there have to be confidence in the actual robot itself that will do the procedure, but all of the infrastructure that sits around the robot, as you point out, to make sure that it is working, that it's working properly uh, and things are progressing according to plan. Simple things, right, that we might not think about when there is a physician in the room, but just to make sure that there's power, for example, that the robot can 
complete the entire procedure, there's not going to be a gap in power, that there's redundancies in some of these systems. All of that infrastructure, you're exactly right, has to be in place and has to fall in that same level of comfort, security, regulatory compliance and redundancy that, that we would expect. You know, the Da Vinci uh, surgical system was quite a breakthrough. Do we see uh, more of such breakthroughs coming in uh, in the near future? You know, we have interesting things underway at several companies, right? Stryker in the orthopedics space, for example, their robotic platform, I think as the end of last year, uh, 2021, uh, had done about a half million procedures in the orthopedic space. We have uh, Medtronic with a very holistic view of how robots can be used and deployed uh, across their product portfolio to help uh, surgeons improve access to care and care outcomes. So yes, I expect us to see more and more of these platforms come to life. And obviously, you know, uh, Johnson & Johnson and the acquisitions that they have made of two uh, fairly large robotic platforms give us additional indications that medical device manufacturers see the opportunity associated with these robots, again, to uh, deliver better care outcomes to larger populations. You work with clients like uh, Johnson & Johnson, and uh, I'm sure they're adopting, but there are probably many more companies where you have to establish a business case for them. How is that playing out? You're right, Pranjal. There are a number of our clients who are either currently on their robotic journey or initiating a robotic journey. And it comes back to the point you made just a moment ago about the ecosystem that needs to be in place around the, the robot. The mechanics of the machine are rather straightforward, comparatively speaking. The challenges start to begin around the data itself. What data do we use to inform the robot to guide the procedure? How do we integrate that robot into a clinical environment, as we've discussed, where the, the doctor or nurse is there to support those key elements or to intervene in the event of turbulence, if we go back to our airplane metaphor. So we're helping our clients think through not only the business case of, is this a worthwhile investment, but also the health case, how would this fit? into a clinical environment and existing care pathways, which are not consistent around the world. They're not widely inconsistent, but how a doctor or surgeon practices in the US is slightly different than it is in India, than it is in Germany. And the robots have to be designed to fit within those unique environments. Then there's the third and final piece, which is the data itself. How is the information, not only from the robot, but from all of the other devices, the blood pressure monitor, the blood oxygen monitoring, right? All of these other aspects that go into a successful procedure, how is that data integrated along with the robotic data? How is that data kept secure? And then how is that data used to advance the sophistication of the robot to deliver even better outcomes tomorrow? Well, an important piece is a business model apart from the business case. And apart from the earlier model of a healthcare service provider acquiring a robo and then deploying it on its patients with the experienced doctors, there is also the uh, new model of the surgery as a service in some ways where you don't have to own it, but maybe you lease it. Is that going to be a new model of which will replace the old one? Or do you see constant evolution of uh, such models? 
Yeah, I think the service model will become more and more prevalent and dominant as we look around the globe because the, the hospital systems themselves, the governments or the commercial insurance companies that pay for care delivery, uh, they want to pay for good health outcomes as each of us do as a consumer or a patient. And so the robots start to provide that consistency and procedure and activities, right? There's of course some variance between all of us as humans, but again, the robot's gonna have a broader set of data points to draw from to deal with those unique variations that make each of us distinct people. So that services model where the robot in a facility is leveraging the information and insights that are gained from a global network of robots that are delivering those kinds of procedures, we think will become the model of the future. You mentioned something uh, because all these points also raise the question in my mind, and I'm sure for service providers, your clients, about regulatory issues. It's also about compliance issues. And while there are variations in different regimes uh, and regulatory environments, the fact is that questions on accountability, responsibility are also there. Now, you know, under most medical regulatory systems, if something goes wrong, the doctor is liable and the healthcare service provider is liable. But if it's an autonomous robot or if the robot does something wrong or if there's an error, now, where do you see those kind of policies to encourage innovation, but at the same time, protect the interest and rights of the patients? Now, that's a very difficult balance. And I'm sure you are talking to your clients constantly about how to make the most of it. Yeah, fortunately, we have, at least so far in the U.S. market and uh, the European market following behind regulatory uh, schemes and regulators that are viewing the uh, adoption of robots as a way to, again, expand access to care and to deliver better health outcomes and deliver consistently better health outcomes. So we go back to some of those earlier platforms that we talked about, like the LASIK platform or the Intuitive platform. We have seen how those play out in the market relative to data privacy, relative to care outcomes and in those unfortunate circumstances where things go awry, how are those handled appropriately in terms of responsibility of the respective parties? So we are all learning through this process, the companies themselves, the clinicians, the regulators, uh, and then the hospital systems that employ the physicians and deploy the robot. And I think we are building a community and a wealth of knowledge around how these things can work and should work. And that will continue to be instructive and helpful for us as we see more and more of these robotic platforms come to market. A final uh, question and theme for you, Brian, is that we then therefore need a, a global industry level collaboration between companies like yours and the companies like Johnson and & Johnson and, and perhaps governments as well to create the right kind of environment to push this forward in the safest and most innovative way possible. What's your personal view and what's your personal vision for it? And how do you think will be the best way ahead to promote robotic surgery while taking care of everybody's uh, interests? Yes. Well, we're fortunate in that some of the enablers of that environment are already in place, Ranjo. 
So for example, we do have an international regulatory harmonization uh, working group and schema in place that brings the major regulatory bodies together to try to understand how these uh, new technologies uh, like robotics or even new therapeutics, right? How science is advancing and what that means for human health. So that infrastructure is in place. In addition, we have industry trade groups like Advamed in the US and its counterpart Ucomed across Europe and elsewhere that are working with the medical device manufacturers to understand where and how the regulatory environment is uh, positioned at the moment, how it needs to potentially evolve to adapt to some of the mechanical, technological, and scientific advances that are represented by the robotic platforms that we see in market as well as emerging. So I'm, I'm hopeful that those bodies, harmonization effort, Advamed, Ucomed, and others, continue to work in collaboration for the benefit of the industry, but most importantly, for the benefit of patients worldwide. Thank you, Brian. You know, that's very exciting to know because it's also reassuring that as the robo's role in medical and surgical interventions increases, there's also a few people who are looking over and there is oversight. There are people concerned and ensuring that it moves in the best way possible. So thank you for sharing not just what's happened, but what is likely to happen in the world of robotic surgery. My pleasure. Nice being with you today, Pranzo. And thank you to everybody for listening. I was in conversation with Brian Williams, Chief Digital Officer and Global Life Sciences Consulting Leader at Cognizant. Thank you once again, and we'll be back with another edition of Disruption Dialogues very soon. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Disruption Dialogues. If you are a strategy or market intelligence professional, we invite you to join our community on LinkedIn, Hashtag Disruption Dialogues.